0: Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we shall be going over The Mummy Returns from 2001. Much like with the film that preceded this one, it has been necessary to split this into two parts, as there is far too much to cover in one episode. Even in the first minute of this film, I had half a page of notes. As such, this episode will focus roughly on the first half of the film, with the next episode focusing on the second half. In terms of the layout of the episode, I shall start with little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy of the first half, and finally I shall review the first half of the film. Right, you are a mighty warrior who with the help of the undead army of Anubis is rampaging across ancient Egypt, wiping out all who cross your path. As your last enemy falls, Anubis takes your soul. However, this is not the end for you. Five thousand years later, you will arise from your slumber. You shall come back to life when the mummy returns. This film had a budget of $98 million, which comes to $166.5 million after inflation. This makes it the most expensive Mummy movie made up until this point. Due to the incredible success of The Mummy from 1999, this film was greenlit the day after the film debuted, and considering that it grossed over $435 million at the box office, to overtake The Mummy as the most financially successful mummy movie ever made, this was clearly the right choice. In terms of the cast, once again we have Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell, Rachel Weitz as EB, and John Hanna as her brother, Jonathan. However, there are also several new faces, including Dwayne Johnson in his first ever Hollywood role as the Scorpion King, and Freddie Both, who plays Alex, the son of Rick O'Connell and Evie. Freddy Both was apparently such a fan of The Mummy from 1999 that he turned down a part in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone to be in this film. Further, the Egyptologist Stuart Tyson Smith once again returns to help with the reconstruction of the ancient Egyptian language and the inscriptions found within the film. We have now arrived at the historical accuracy section of this episode. So, as usual, I shall just go over what the film gets right and wrong. As mentioned in the opening to this episode, I had half a page of notes just from the first minute alone. The film opens with a large 3067 BC coming up on the screen as we see the Scorpion King leading his army to battle against the city of Thebes. First things first, I'm not sure why they've given such a specific date, uh, because for events this far back, we don't have exact dates. And in fact, the first more or less definite date we have in history comes from the reign of the I, some 2,000 odd years later. However, there were potentially two kings named Scorpion from ancient Egypt, and both ruled before 3000 BCE. The first was a ruler of southern Egypt around about the 32nd century BCE, and in fact, it's possible that he was the one to actually unify southern Egypt. However, more famous than this first scorpion, and also closer in time period to this early stage of the film, is King Scorpion II. The most famous artefact of King Scorpion II is his ceremonial mace head, which is decorated with his depiction. Here, he is wearing the white crown of southern Egypt, indicating that he also ruled over this area. Although little is known about King Scorpion II, it is likely that his name refers to the goddess Sircret, whose origins come from Nubia, so modern-day Sudan, where the black scorpion is common. Either way, as already said, we start the film with the scorpion king standing with his army outside of the city of Thebes. In fairness to the film, Thebes did likely exist during the reign of King Scorpion II. However, at this time it would have been little more than a provincial town and therefore would have been nowhere near as grand as shown in the film. It is also probably worth noting that past the wall of Thebes in the film, we can see a pyramid. So, the first ever pyramid was the Step Pyramid of Djoser which was built around about 2600, maybe 2700 BCE. Therefore, unless the Scorpion King is supposed to be a time traveller, this is incorrect. In the Scorpion King's army, there are several people holding up the King's standard, made presumably of solid gold. On these, there are two Uraei, so cobras, and also several depictions of Anubis. Not only are Uraiai a symbol of Wadjet, one of the oldest Egyptian deities, but she was also the matron deity of southern Egypt, which was where the Scorpion King came from. I highly doubt the filmmakers realise this as Uraiai are very common from ancient Egypt, but it is a nice coincidence nonetheless. In terms of the depictions of Anubis on these standards, well, Anubis absolutely existed this far back and in fact he can be found on the ceremonial mace head of king scorpion which i mentioned earlier during this battle scene the main weapons we see are compressed swords spears and axes and also shields firstly there are plenty of pre-dynastic depictions of shields on pottery Spears were also used in pre-dynastic Egypt. However, the ones in the film look like they were made from bronze, where at this early period they would have been crafted from either reed or wood and tipped with flint. Although, in fairness, there is some evidence for copper tipping as well. The axes in the film also are mostly made from bronze, where in reality they would have been more likely to be stone or flint. Such axes shown in the film were more common from the Middle Kingdom onwards, a thousand odd years after King Scorpion. So once again, I guess the Scorpion King has the ability to travel through time and space like an incredibly muscular, loincloth-wearing Doctor Who. As for compressed swords, they were not used at this time at all, and in fact, the first ever depiction of one comes from Mesopotamia some 500 years after the setting of this film. Finally, in this opening scene, King Scorpion attacks a city, and during this attack, we see several obelisks. Once again, there is absolutely no evidence for obelisks before the 12th dynasty, and so this is incorrect. And in fact, the earliest obelisks actually come from Heliopolis in northern Egypt, near modern-day Cairo after this opening scene the film moves to the year 1933 where we see rick o'connell eb and their son alex searching an ancient egyptian tomb during the scene that seems standard for these films the characters treat their ancient surroundings with an utter lack of respect rick o'connell in particular makes a point of opening every door by leveraging them with a crowbar usually after smashing the door several times for good measure. I suppose at least Evie does look uncomfortable while he does this however, but... I don't know, if I was in her situation, I'd absolutely be stopping him. I did also notice they they have a habit throughout this scene of holding open flames slightly too close to very dry human remains. By this stage in history, I feel they probably would have been using flashlights further once again like in the mummy 1999 they have the strange star-shaped keys that are supposed to be ancient egyptian in origin i spoke about these in the second episode of the mummy 1999 so i'm not going to go over this here too much however i do find it funny how every lock in the tomb no matter how old just conveniently still works perfectly and that every key is just conveniently nearby it's only archaeology was this easy towards the end of this scene they find the emblem of the scorpion king evie then claims that up until that point the scorpion king was nothing more than myth as there had been no artifacts and no archival evidence ever found of him the raceheads of king scorpion 2 mentioned earlier in the episode was found between 1897 and 1898 so this is incorrect by 1933, we had been aware of King Scorpion 2 for quite some time. Shortly after finding this emblem, they find a box which contains the bracelet of Anubis, which once belonged to the Scorpion King. Interestingly, on the box, there are two Uraei wearing the White Crown of Southern Egypt. The Scorpion King in real life seemed to have ruled over Southern Egypt as already mentioned, so this does make sense, though I am uncertain whether the film writers did this intentionally or not. Admittedly, the box does also contain a depiction of a pyramid. Assuming the box was supposed to come from the Scorpion King's time also, this would be incorrect. As already mentioned, there were no pyramids in Egypt until several hundred years later. During this scene, Evie claims that the top of the box reads, He who opens this chest shall drink from the Nile. From what I could see, there are no hieroglyphs on top of the chest, though there are some cartouches on the side which never seem to be well enough in focus to read properly annoyingly. Therefore, I suspect that this was not written anywhere on the chest. It is worth noting that Stuart Tyson Smith worked on some of the inscriptions on the film, so it may be that the inscription was on the chest, but it was just never in shot of the camera. It is also possible that I just didn't see them. I mean, I did look quite extensively for them, but human error is always a possibility. Basically, when it comes to the historical accuracy in this first half, it's pretty bad. Although the Scorpion King is based on a real ruler of southern Egypt, there are various depictions of both pyramids and obelisks during the flashback scenes to his reign. Such things would not have been present. Further, although Thebes would have existed during his reign, it would have been little more than a provincial town and would therefore have been nowhere near as grand as shown in the film. However, in fairness, Anubis, who is referenced a lot in both the early part of the film and later on, would have existed during the time of the Scorpion King. And further, on the box containing the Scorpion King's bracelet, there were several depictions of the White Crown of Southern Egypt. As King Scorpion was the ruler of this area, this does at least make sense, though it is likely that this point was highly incidental and not intended by the writers. In this final section, I'm just going to review the film saying what I like and dislike. Firstly, the opening to this film is incredibly exciting and I feel does a good job of setting things up it is made instantly clear who the Scorpion King is and why he may be a threat later to our heroes. Further, personally, I really liked Dwayne Johnson in this role. I know that Dwayne Johnson is not for everyone, but for me, personally, I'm a bit of a fan, and I would very much like to see him again as the Scorpion King in the future if they were to ever make another Mummy movie in this particular franchise. Dwayne Johnson was not the only new face that I quite enjoyed in this film. So, for instance, I also really liked Joe Dixon, Tom Fisher and Bruce Bryan, who played the three thief contractors hired to find the bracelet of Anubis for our villains. I felt that they played their parts well and they reminded me a bit of Pintel and Rigetti from Pirates of the Caribbean, in that regardless of how horrible they actually are, they also come across as weirdly lovable. For reference, Rogetti is the pirate with the wooden eye. Further, personally, I quite like the casting of Freddie Both as Evie and Rick's son, Alex, although I do understand why some people find him a little annoying. It is fair to say that his acting left a lot to be desired in this film, but he was also 10 when this film came out, and so it's probably worth being a little forgiving about this. Further, although I do feel that this entire family needs to be kept far away from ancient ruins, I admit that I did get a kick out of seeing Alex knocking over the pillars in the tomb at the beginning, as this links back to Evie knocking over the shelves in the library in the first film. The chemistry between Jonathan and Alex was also pretty fun, as Alex plays on Jonathan's greed by telling him stories of the treasures of ancient Egypt. Moving on, towards the end of the first half, we see a flashback scene to ancient Egypt, where we find out that Ebi is the reincarnation of the daughter of Seti I. Although reincarnation wasn't really a concept in ancient Egypt, this is a nice touch as it gives extra context as to why Imhotep chose her as a sacrifice in the first film and built upon that film's lore although I will admit that my eyes rolled all the way into the back of my head when I found out that they had named Evie's former self Nefertiti in this film. Nefertiti most certainly was not a daughter of Seti I, and once again, they have clearly just randomly picked a name of a famous Egyptian person. Nefertiti was actually the wife of a pharaoh named Akhenaten, and may possibly have ruled as pharaoh herself for a few years. It is worth saying also that, Eb being the reincarnation of the daughter of Seti the First is occasionally used as an overly convenient plot device. Finally, for me personally, I felt that the music in this film was actually slightly better than its predecessor. Although both films have excellent scores, I found that this film's score, composed by Alan Silvestri, captured a very fun action-adventure vibe. Overall, At the halfway mark, much like with its predecessor, I am very much enjoying this film. And in fact, I may be enjoying it slightly more, if anything. However, it is fair to say that I feel my answer would vary depending on the day you asked me and what film I had last watched. So, I suppose it is more appropriate to say that both films are equally good at the halfway mark. Thank you very much for listening, and if you are new and you've enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing, leaving a comment, leaving a like, and please join me next Monday, where we shall be concluding The Mummy Returns.